Hey guys, welcome to episode two of my interview with Dr. Dante Bryant. As we start section two, you'll realize quickly there's no transition. We didn't plan on one. And so we just jump right back into the conversation where we left off and it will make sense. So thank you for joining for a full introduction of Dr. Bryant. Please listen to episode one. And as always, enjoy. The phrase that I've heard you use that really connected with me is, is you said, when I go into a meeting, there's parts of myself I have to check in at the door in order to be taken seriously. I believe you laid it out that way. And you said, if you don't have to check in a part of yourself at the door, then you are in a position of privilege, right? Therefore, yeah. you can bring your whole self to the conversation and people are going to go, I believe and trust that guy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, yeah, no, and, that, and that's, a, that's a rare position to be in, right? Uh, depending on like what your social categories are. Uh, and we all kind of reside at this different intersection of different social categories, whether we're a person of color and female, or a person of color and female who is low income, you know, in all these different intersections, right? But the reality is, is that any public or social space that you step into, by and large, if it is a mainstream public space, it is governed by the rules, the aesthetics, the behaviors, um, uh, the language of really white middle-class America. Right? And if you don't adhere to those, those values, those rules, and those aesthetics, then what happens is, is that you're perceived as being um, less believable. And, and Du Bois talks about, W.B. Du Bois, he has, a, he has this concept of like double consciousness, which he argues that, you know, that if you are a black person in America, you have to operate in two different worlds. You have to operate in black America and you have to operate in white America. And these are two different sets of rules and two slightly different ways of being and in some ways, drastic different ways of being. Right. Um, in some disciplines, they call this like performance. Right. Like having to perform for an audience. Right. <laughs> and. Uh, Jung talks about in terms of persona, right? Like there's all these different like articulations of this process of having to check yourself at the door, right? Uh, Jung's persona says, essentially, it comes from this idea of like you wear a mask um, and it was, it was based on stage performers. And so they would have a mask on and that mask served two functions. One, it made them believable to the audience, right? And two, it served as a microphone so that their voice could be heard by the audience, right? So it makes you believable and it makes, it allows you to have a voice, right? This is what this mask does, this persona, right? Mm -hmm. As a person of color, as a black male, I know that the moment I step into a space that I'm going to have to perform, I'm going to have to engage in this double consciousness, I'm going to have to, I'm gonna have to put on a persona. Otherwise, it's going to be problematic, right? And the reason why it's going to be problematic is because my black body, by, by and large, has been colonized. Uh, D.L. Hughley said this recently, and some, you know, it, it was a quote from someone else, so he took it from them, but it was like, you know, one of the most dangerous places for a black man to live in America is in the imagination of white America. And my body has been associated with violence, criminality, ignorance, right, um, fear, my body has been associated with all of these things via white America, right? And this isn't a new thing, right? This, this say, I received this education, you received this education, your parents received it, your great grandparents, everybody before you has received the same education about black male bodies, 
right? And correspondingly, very similar education about black female bodies in terms of being hypersexual, right? Deviant, all of these different things. And so I have to, when I step into a room, I have to operate under the assumption that you have received this education and that it has had an impact on you. Whether you are conscious of that impact or not is not the point. The fact that it's difficult to live or impossible rather, I would say, right? To live in an environment where the air is toxic and not inhale it. So if you've grown up in this environment, it has had an influence on you and your perceptions of me as a black male. So when I come into your office or I come into your space, I have to, I have to be aware of this, right? And as a result, um, I have to perform. Now that performance does not require me to be unauthentic, right? But what it does require is that I articulate myself through a certain set of practices and aesthetics that are familiar and most comfortable to you. Because what I'm trying to manage is your passive or unconscious perceptions of me as a black male. And so now I'm in the space of performance. And this is something that everyone does not have to do, right? So like um, uh, an example is I was, uh, so when I was, when I was finishing on my doctorate, we have, uh, I had a bunch of colleagues and most of my colleagues were white females, great colleagues. And we were getting close to the point where we had to start interviewing for jobs, right? And if you don't, if you don't know anything about academic job interviewing, it's, it's a gauntlet, right? It can last two to three days consecutively starting at seven o'clock in the morning and you go from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m., right? And you'll do this two or three days in a row. And the entire time you're just kind of being interrogated and assessed <laughs> by these people who you're hoping will hire you, right? Like this is this is this is the dynamic, right? Um, you with limited power. You academics, you academics are hard on each other, man. Oh man, it's unbelievable, right? Like it's just <laughs> it is this unbelievably unnecessarily rigorous thing, right? And so uh, I saw my colleagues, and we're sitting around, and some of them are literally, and we're all getting to that point. Where we're gonna have to start engaging on what they call going on the market, right? And um, and they are, they're having panic attacks. Now me, generally speaking, I'm a pretty laid back person. I don't get stressed out about a whole lot, but I found myself getting anxious <laughs> because my colleagues were so anxious. I, I go to a, a professor who I, I had a great relationship with and who ultimately helped, uh, was on my dissertation committee. And I asked her, you know, I was like, listen, you know, uh, you know uh, this person, this person, this person, they're having panic attacks worrying about this, uh, this, this job interview process. And, you know, I'm wondering, like, what is it about this process that is so, like, that, that's so scary? Like, what is it I, I hear people tell these horror stories, right? <laughs> I'm, just like, so I'm like, I'm like, what is actually happening here, right? And she looks at me like, with, you know, with very, like, very intense, she's like, Dante, that's a great question. She's like, I'm gonna tell you. She's like, one, it's, you know, you go to a university, they pick you up at seven o'clock in the morning. And from the time they pick you up until the time they drop you off at five o'clock in the evening, you have to be on. You have to be at your best, right? You have to think about what you're saying and what you're doing. And you have to be conscious of how you're sitting and, and how you're dressed. And you have to think about all of these things because all of these things matter, Right. Everything from like when you sit, when they take you to dinner, whether or not you, you order some alcohol or not. Right. You have to pay attention to whether if they order alcohol, then maybe it's OK for you. And you have to read all of these social cues. And like basically you're having to like you're having to perform for like this this entire eight to 12 hour period. 
right? Mm -hmm. And then you go to sleep and you get up and you do the same thing the next day, right? And I'm sitting there listening to this, <laughs> listening to her, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I find myself, right? Like waiting for like, okay, but like, but what is it that causes the anxiety? Right? Like, <laughs> like, I'm like, <laughs> like what? <laughs> and I was about to say it, cause she just stops. She comes to a dead stop. It was like, and like, that's it. Like, boom, there it is right there. It's, it's having to be on for three days straight. And I literally, I was standing with my mouth open because I was, I was still waiting for the climax, like what that thing was. And then it dawned on me in that moment. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, you don't realize that I'm doing that right now. Wow. Every day. That's your life. You're, that, yeah. Yeah. It, it, the funny thing is, right, like, I knew this kind of passively, but for some reason, like in this moment, like it really hit me. And I was like, oh, so you don't ever do this, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like this is not what you do. Like you just kind of show up as yourself because the rules that govern the environment, right, are rules that were created by people who look, function, live, right, like you. And so you just show up as you are in most environments and can simply be. And I'm thinking like the only space in my daily activity, right? And this is the honest truth. The only time in my day, like in a 24 hour time period that I am not performing, right? I'm not checking, quote unquote, checking myself at the door is when I'm in my home with my wife and my daughter, that's it. The moment I live in an all predominantly white neighborhood, a white affluent neighborhood at that, right? I have a couple of black neighbors, but for the most part, you know, and again, it's an affluent white neighborhood, right? And that's important too, right? Because a certain type of, of a, a performance you have to engage in, right? Um, and so literally the moment I walk out of my door with my daughter to take her to daycare, it's, I'm on. And I don't cut it off until I get back home. And again, it, to be able to function in a society where you don't have to do that, for me, it's, it's difficult to even imagine what I would do with all the extra like intellectual free time. Right. <laughs> yeah. The mental like, space, right? Yeah. I mean, honestly speaking, I mean, after I had this conversation with her, I immediately called a friend of mine. I was like, you're not going to believe this. Right. Because <laughs> <Like, laughs> um, literally at any given point when I'm in a, whether I'm speaking, you know, with, with you all, you know, as, as a collective or whatever it may be at, at the symposium, 90% of my, my, I would venture to guess about 90% of my, my intellectual activity has nothing to do with what I'm saying. It has nothing to do with the content that's actually being said. Most of it is trying to figure out, trying to think through what you all are thinking as it relates to my aesthetic and what I'm trying to say, right? So most of my thought is about negotiating the space so that when I do speak, you can actually hear it. And I, I think the, that, and that goes to show, and that's why, when I've listened to you, I go, I'm starting to get it now because you're coming to me in a way where you're thoughtful of who I am and how I need to hear something. Yeah. 
I think, and I think that's what you mean meant in the beginning when you said by understanding whiteness, right? Yeah. And I think that that is a really important point because I understand you better because I understand me and have started to understand me a lot better because I've never had to check myself in at the door. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, you know, but not in the way you do. And, and so that kind of made me pause as I started to really think on that and be like, wow. I can just show up and not have to think in that way. Yeah. And in that way, okay, now I start to see where Dante's coming from. Yeah. And I, I think that's it too, right? It's, it's like even, so the skill set to do that is just a, a per, as a person of color, right? And the, the thing is like a very similar dynamic takes place if you're a female trying to operate in a male space. Um, because whenever you are in a position that is where you lack the institutional or th institutional power, right? Um, or just power period, whenever you are in a, a, a subordinate um, social, political, or economic power position, it behooves you right, <laughs> to really understand the person who has the power. And, and, and I would take it one step further right if you plan on not only not only like succeeding but surviving in this space you have to understand that person better than they understand themselves so i i would always i always tell people i'm like listen i understand white america i, I, I will always have a, a a more lucid understanding uh of white america than the average white person will ever have of black america and the reason why is despite how passionate they may be and the reason why it's not a knock on them, but it's rather my knowledge is born out of necessity, where theirs is born out of maybe passion or curiosity. Mine is really an issue of life or death. Because if I'm in the wrong situation, particularly me as a black male, right? It's a certain type of male in society. If I'm in a situation and I do not perform appropriately, I could very easily lose my life. Right, and we, we see this, like with, we see this, the, the, young, the young woman who just got, uh, got 10 years in prison, who literally walked into her, her neighbor's apartment. Now, when I say neighbor, the person who lived above her, she walked into his apartment. Uh, he was an accountant, he was off work. He was sitting on his couch, watching TV, eating ice cream, right? She walked into his space. He jumped up in an effort to defend himself she, an off-duty police officer, shot and killed him because she felt threatened. She thought she was in her apartment, right? right? If I get pulled over by the police, I remember as a kid, my dad was like, listen, if you get pulled over by the police, this is how you come home. It wasn't like, this is, this is the respect you should show for law enforcement. It was like, no, no, no. This is, these are the things you need to engage in in order for you to come home. Wow. Right? That's a very different conversation. This is where you keep your driver's license, right? When they come up, this is where you put your hands. These are the words that you use. This is the tone that you use. Do not concern yourself. If he says something derogatory to you, do not respond. And so being able to survive, my knowledge is one out of necessity. But unfortunately, but, but in the same breath, the knowledge that I have is also a product of privilege itself. Because you only develop that skill set, you only acquire that knowledge if you're in spaces, right, where you're consistently interacting 
with white normative structures. And that's largely economic because if I'm a poor black kid growing up, uh, and we know this, right? Uh, Wilson, uh, Wilson talks about this frequently, the sociologist talks about how black poverty is very different than white poverty because black poverty, particularly inner city poverty, right, is insulated, right? There's that, there's that part of town that's black and impoverished, right? Like it's a very particular section. And if you look at any major city, right, you look at public transportation, uh, what you will find is in that impoverished area is largely where the public transportation resides. And it does not take them out of that area. Or if it does, it only takes them to certain spaces and it will take them right back, right? Like I live in an area, like I said, I live in a relatively affluent area. There is no, you cannot catch a city bus to my house, right? You can't, and that's very intentional because the idea is if you cannot afford to come here, then you don't need to be here. Uh, and if you look at your affluent neighborhoods throughout the country, very few of them have public transport, public buses that come through there. And so that poverty is very isolated. And so as a result, those individuals who are black and impoverished do not interact necessarily with mainstream white America frequently enough to learn the skills necessary to survive in those spaces. This is a different skill set that's required, right? And all that to say, like, yeah, so there is like there is this idea of performance, right? Like this, but again, performance is a skill set. And performance is a skill set that's acquired via one knowledge and the awareness of what's happening and the privilege of having had opportunity to interact with white America, right? Uh, and learn what needs to be done in order for you to negotiate that space. And any, and I, I assure you that most, most black people who have been successful quote unquote successful, whether it's economically, edu economically or educational wise, uh, politically, whatever, whatever it may be, right? Um, in predominantly white spaces have done so because they have developed that skill set. And part of that skill set is understanding that your body has been taken as perceived a very particular way by the people you come in contact with. And so a good, a large portion of my energy is about making you comfortable with me being in front of you as a black body. So I have to ease your anxieties, right? So you're right, like with the, with the, with the group, you know, uh, a large part of what I do, and I use, I use whether it's comedy, right? I try to, I place things in certain contexts. I, I make, I go back doors into a lot of major, you know, and very uh, difficult issues. And I do a lot of that because I need to make sure that you're comfortable with me standing in front of you, looking the way that I look, right? And talking about you. Yeah. Because who else does, who does it, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, really. hard, I mean, that's a really yeah. hard thing to do, right? In, yeah. in without finding yourself possibly angering people or offending people or or defensiveness right that i so, talked about in the beginning so and that, that's the other thing too right is so these um like critical conversations right anytime you're having conversations particularly when you're bringing together people who are marginalized and oppressed in any any particular way right and people whose privilege um, protects them from 
the experience of that particular type of marginalization or oppression. Whenever you bring those two into the same space, one, it's going to be uncomfortable and it should be. And, and two, it's not a safe space. Right? <laughs> it, it's, it's honestly not, right? And the, one of the ironies is, is that the purpose of that conversation is to, let's say we're talking about like gender inequality, right? Um, and we have a group of women who come in and to, to express their experiences, so forth and so on. And a group of men, we all come in, you know, not only to listen, but to engage and to kind of self-reflect and identify on how we contribute to these various social systems, whatever it may be, right? The moment that conversation begins, that conversation is largely focused on the absence of safe space for women. Like that's, that's essentially what's at like the bottom of this conversation is the fact that the, this particular population of people, this particular group of people um, lack certain social, political, economic forms of power that ensure that when they move about in the world, right, not only are they treated equally and equitably, but that they're safe. But me as a male, I think I'm coming into this space and it should be safe for me. <laughs> like it, it's, yeah, you see the irony in that, right? <laughs> like, it's like, right. yeah, it's like, you know, I'm going to talk, like I need it to be safe so that I can have a conversation. So this, this is the irony, right? This, is, this always blows me away. As a male, I feel like this space should be safe so that I can safely have a conversation, not live your life, right? Not trade places with you, but simply so that I can safely have a conversation with you about the lack of safety in your lived everyday life. <laughs> right, like the, absurd, yeah. the absurdity of that is, it's astounding, right? <laughs> like like it, yeah. it genuinely is. But that's oftentimes how we think. And unfortunately, like, and that's one of the benefits of privilege, right? Right. Is like, when we talk about things like racism, uh, and, and let's say, just say racism and sexism, right? Like these are like clearly two very prominent forms uh, of privilege that people have and the forms of oppression in our current social system, right? Mm -hmm. When we talk about racism, we often talk about it as if it's a black and brown people problem. When we talk about sexism, we talk about sexism as if it's a problem for women. But, and this is, this, is the, this is the power of privilege. Racism is not a black and brown people problem. It is a white people problem. Mm -hmm. Now, that particular problem for white people has consequences for black and brown people. And the power of privilege is that as a white person, you do not have to deal with the consequences of your own issues. Someone else deals with them for you. Exactly. As a male, right? Sexism is not a woman's problem. It is a men's problem. Right? It's a problem <laughs> that we have, right? Yeah. Um, and our privilege is we do not have to deal with the consequences of our own issues, but women do. And that's why as a white male or as a male, 
we sit here, we go, we don't see sexism. We don't see. Yeah. Problem. yeah. I, I see you as an equal. I see you as the same as me. And then a woman might say, well, I don't feel that way. And then we go, well, you're wrong. We'll see. And that's, <laughs> and so, <laughs> right? no, we go, well, you're wrong no, for feeling that do. way. And, so, and, and that's the, the power, the privilege of power that, that yes. makes it uneven, right? That's what yes. you're saying. It makes it profoundly like it, it helps to like facilitate the problem. Like and that's that right there happened with me and my wife. Maybe about actually right before I came to Utah. Yeah, you told us the story. I don't mind. Yeah, Sherry, you, yeah you, no, it was. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need. I could. I honestly could not even tell you what the full conversation was about. Right, it had nothing to do with us personally. A matter of fact, I do. It was like, I ran into a guy, he said something, this, that, and the third. And I'm telling my wife about this interaction with this guy, right? And my wife says to me, she, she's, she's visibly bothered by this, by this story that I'm telling her, right? <laughs> and I'm completely oblivious to why she's so irritated, right? <laughs> like, I'm like, what? It's clear to me that something's bothering her, but I'm like, no, this is a funny story. Like, this needs to be told, right? And like, at some point, I stopped. Right, add an, at least a, a, an inkling of self-awareness to stop and be like, you might want to ask her what's going on, right? <laughs> but this is where my self, yeah, yeah, exactly. But this is where my self-awareness stopped, right? Like it, it, it started and ended right there, right? So I asked the question. I said, I said, hey, um, like something's clearly bothering you. Like what is it? And she said to me, everything you're saying to me is extremely sexist. And this is where I say my self-awareness stopped, started and stopped with that question, right? My immediate response to her was, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and in that moment, in my mind, that was the end of the conversation. It's like, no, it's not. Like, clearly what I'm saying is not sexist. Like, it's not, right? And my wife, response to me and says, if a white man said something racist to you, and you told him that what you said was racist, that he said is racist. And he responded to you by saying, no, it's not. How would you respond? And at that point, I just shut down. Oof. And I was like, yeah. And, <laughs> and, then, she, <laughs> and then she went on to, to further in, interrogate me, right? Like, and rightfully so. She was like, she said, babe, what you don't understand is that when you look at social equality as a man, you often view it solely through the lens of race. She said, but me, I have to look at it through the lens of race and gender. Um, and so of course, like, she completely shuts down the conversation because clearly she made more sense than I did. You know, <laughs> and that was that, right? You, you made but, a smart woman, yes. Yeah, no, I did, I did, you know, I did. I, I'm very proud of myself for that too. But like, um, so yeah, so I think, and, and I think that's, and, and that's the irony is that as people in positions of privilege, we have the positional power and institutional power and authoritative power to define what is a problem and what is not a problem for other people, right? Well said, yes. And, 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 and that is part, that's part of the problematic, right? And typically, I don't, I don't care who you are, if someone gives you the power to define what the problem is, it's very unlikely that you're going to describe yourself. <laughs> like that's just 
Well, can you share, and I think to your point, can you share the statistics you shared with us at the last conference? Of yeah, no, I mean, uh, the, uh, or what was the early 1900s? And I, I think I that helps us understand the whiteness or the privilege. I don't, I honestly don't really understand, remember what they were, but what I can do is this, right? And I think, and you touched on this earlier, is that, you know, like somebody will say, you know, I feel the oppression or, and then somebody will respond to them like, well, I don't feel like that's true, right? right? <laughs> like, and I think one of the things we do have to realize, and this is why typically, whenever I do present or when I do talk, I use statistics. I, well, not, I use good statistics, right? <laughs> um, right. I use, uh, I tend to use good research. When I mean good, I mean by things that can be replicated, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and, can, and can endure like rigorous questioning and analysis and so forth and so on. And I use that because I think it helps to kind of remove people. And this also goes back to what you were saying before in terms of like how to kind of facilitate those conversations so people don't feel as uncomfortable, right? Uh, or that at least they're able to, they're willing to engage in that discomfort, I should say that. Um, yeah. But I use statistics because I try to, to move people away from the idea that oppression and marginalization, right? Uh, despite what form they may take, in our participation in privilege, right, specifically, right, that our participation in privilege is not a feeling. It right. is something that you may feel and you may experience, but in and of itself, it is not. It is a quantifiable reality, right? And we see that reality and we can point to those numbers, right? We can point to that in, in every major social institution in this country, right? So like, Generally speaking, like what is held is that criminal justice, healthcare, and education are like are your major social institutions. Education, largely because it feeds into uh, employment, right? So these are your three quote unquote pillars of social institutions. And if you look at any one of those institutions and you look at what they produce, any pick any one of them at any place in this country or just look nationally, and you look at what those institutions produce, what you will consistently see is that people who are white do better, people who are black do worse. What you will consistently see is that men do better, women do worse. Now, caveat being, women do worse based on race, right? So there's all these other intersecting factors. So if you look at like, so like criminal justice system, right? Like we know it, it, nationally, right? Um, like African-Americans are, are four to five times more likely to be pulled over. They're five times more likely to be arrested. They're seven to nine times more likely to be overcharged, which means that when the officer arrested them, the officer added on additional charges just in case the first one doesn't stick, right? So it's just like, I'm just gonna keep piling these on you because one of these is going to end you up in jail. And so the, Black folk are seven, not just black, black and Latino folk in particular are seven to nine times more likely to be overcharged. They're two times more likely to receive a harsher sentence than a white person with the exact same criminal history and the exact same charge. In New Jersey alone, just in, in, in New Jersey, if you are an African-American male under the age of 18, you are 40 times more likely to be arrested than a white male. 40. So that means if you look at New Jersey's juvenile jail population, for every one white male, you have 40 black males in there. 
Wow. That's absurd. And some people are like, oh, well, you know, well, black people commit more crimes, right? <laughs> like, Latino people commit more crimes, right? Like, and that's oftentimes a response. But what we also know is that research that's coming out of Princeton, Cal Berkeley, right, has also pointed out and, and clearly articulated that black, brown, and white folk commit crimes at the same rate. They use white teenage youth use, sell, uh, and engage in drugs equally, if not more, than their Black and Latino counterparts. And, and then when you start breaking that out by, by economic class, it gets even more dramatic. So that's just the criminal justice system. Like, that's just one social system. If you look at employment, we know that um, if you are an African-American, you are 50% less likely to receive a callback <laughs> right, than someone who is white. Now, they actually did a study, um, I can't remember the exact name of it, something like is Jack and Jill more employable than uh, Hakeem and something or other. And essentially what they did was they took a resume and all they did was change the name on the resume. That's it, change nothing, exact same resume. And they sent the resume to the same employer. And they did this for like several different employers. And what they found is if you had a, a name that was typically associated with a white person, Chris, John, Paul, Steve, you were 50% more likely to get a callback. Wow. Same resume. And then assuming you did get a callback, right? <laughs> you're still 50% less likely to actually get hired. And so, and this is what's fascinating, right? If you are a person of color, particularly a, a, a black or Latino, right? You are 50% less likely to be hired with a college degree and no criminal record I'm sorry, with a high school diploma and no criminal record than a white male with a high school degree and a criminal record. And if you are lucky enough to get the job, if you, <laughs> you are, assuming like you and I have the same level of education, we both have high school diplomas, if I'm lucky enough to get a job and you get the job and we're standing side by side, you make 40% more money than I do on average. Now, mind you, the average income for someone <laughs> with a high school diploma is about $24,000 a year. Right, that's the average income, which means that I'm making about fourteen thousand dollars a year, which is literally three thousand dollars over the nationally identified poverty rate of eleven thousand dollars. And this is why, if I can interject for a second, yeah. this is why Black Lives Matter as a movement, right? All of these statistics, the systemic, uh, what do you, you you call it? Systemic racism and yeah. systemic, systemic sexism, uh, yep. sexism. Right, and this is why it's offensive as a person of privilege to say, no, 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 all lives matter, guys. What's the fuss, right? That is why that statement would be offensive, right? To someone who's like, I love everybody. I don't see the big deal. Like, that's the whole point, right? Is I don't see the big deal. I don't live what you're talking about, you do, right? Or what a woman deals with or what, right? Any minority or... Yeah, I would say that's part, definitely part of it. Right? Am I right? Help me out because I'm, I'm trying. I'm still working on no, this. No, no. We're working on it together though, right? Because I'm still trying to figure <laughs> it out. <laughs> I'm telling you that all the time. Right? I'm, I'm working through this on my own terms. Uh, no, I think that that's definitely part of it. The, part of the problem with the statement, all lives matter, right, is... So let, let me back up. Is the that the equivalent of saying 
what, what we were talking about earlier with your wife or sitting in a meeting and being like, oh, I feel this way. No, you don't. No, that's not what's going on, right? Uh, like, it's, it's, it's a little different, right? So I, okay. I would say in a sense that, um, so the question is, Black Lives Matter. One, is it a question or is it a statement, right? Statement, right? I don't know. Like, I, this is just this is just me personally kind of working through this, right? Okay. Like, okay. When I when I hear Black Lives Matter, I wonder to myself, is this a question or is it a statement? Okay. Right? Either way, it's problematic, because as a statement, Black Lives Matter. The fact that I have to make the statement speaks to a problem that Black lives don't matter, right? And right. it assumes that Black people have lives. And that is part of the historical issue that comes into play that is distinct from whites and separates this kind of and causes the tension uh, between this all lives matter and black lives matter. We know that white lives matter. That's never been up for debate. At no point in American history have we ever questioned the value in the economy of white lives. Never. Every yep. political, economic, social, educational, every social system that we have has functioned on the assumptions, on the assumption that white lives matter. Now, that said, right, um, while white lives matter, they don't all have the same power, right? You know, <laughs> by gender yeah. differences, right? But we know that they all matter. Like, we know that. Matter of fact, if, and, but we don't, we can't say that about black lives because historically black lives have not mattered. They have not. Black bodies in this country uh, have always and historically been used as commodities, period. The wealth of this nation was built on the exploitation and the commodification of black bodies and largely speaking bodies of color. That's just the reality of it. Like there's, there's, we can't deny that, right? <laughs> like yeah. that's, like that's a historical fact, right? The whole, the whole, what the part of the issue with the Civil War was not about freeing black people, right? That that wasn't the issue. It was an economic issue. It's because the North was trying to compete with the South, in terms of like economic production. But the reality is, if I have a store where I'm paying people, and you have one where you don't have to pay anybody but we have the same number of people working and we're selling the same number of products, who's gonna be wealthier? By default, you are, right? Because you're not paying anybody, right? And so we know that black bodies have always been commodities, have always, whether it is slavery, whether it was Jim Crow, whether it's the prison industrial complex, right? Black bodies have always been used as commodities and they only matter in so far as they can produce economic advancement and prosperity for white America, whose lives matter, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think the moment you start asserting, oh, no, 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 it's not that black lives matter, it said all lives matter. It's like, oh, but we know that your life matters. That's an unnecessary, it's an unnecessary statement. Our entire society supports and protects your life. It does not do the same for mine, right? And we see this in sentencing. Right, we literally see the young lady we were talking about earlier who walked into another man's apartment, her neighbor's apartment, and shot and killed him while he was watching TV eating ice cream. Uh, her sentence carried a weight of anywhere between five to 99 years in prison. 
Ask me how long she got in prison. Uh, how long did she get in prison? Glad you asked. She got, <laughs> she got, she got sentenced to 10 years in prison. Now, what's ironic is in the state of Texas, this is, was seen, and this is by the, the lawyer of the family of the man who was killed. They saw this as a victory. Now, mind you, the range is between five and 99 years. She got 10. What's also interesting is that in the state of Texas, if a white man were to rape a black woman and a black man raped a white woman, the difference in sentencing is astounding. Historically, the average length of time that a white man serves in prison for raping a black woman is eight to 10 years. The average for a black man who rapes a white woman, right, has been 25 to 30. In the state of Texas. Wow. Right? So I know that your life, <laughs> that your life matters. Like our institution demands and supports that. It does not do the same for me, right? And so for you to say, no, 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 your life doesn't matter, all lives matter. And it's like, well, no, 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 no. We know that everyone else's life matters. <laughs> <You know what's laughs> like we need yeah. to be able to identify those lives that have historically and continuously do not matter. So that, that's part, I think that's part of that tension that's there. And it's also an ignoring of the issue. It's yeah. a way of having to really, it's a way of having to, being able to avoid really looking at what is at the heart in the, the, of the issue, right? Right. which oftentimes is race, yeah, so. So how, how do, this is the million dollar question and there's a, lot of, there's, a lot, there's a lot of long answers to this and a lot of context to it, but I'll, I'll share a recent story that I had that made me think about you. You, you came and spoke and talked about Uber drivers in Salt Lake City. Like, you know, I, I think you counted while you were waiting. Yeah, you know, like, I think, I think by your numbers in a few minutes sitting on the curb, like two thirds of the Uber drivers were black, Latino, you know. Yeah, it was like 80, well, it was actually like 80, I think it was like 82 or 83% of them. Like, yeah. Yeah. Total professor, right? Total academic, right? Never, never not like analyzing was, data. I'm right? always trying to measure, I'm always trying to measure something. Always, right? There you go. So dude, like two, three weeks later, after I heard you speak, I land in Salt Lake City and I'm sitting there waiting for Uber and I start, I go, Dante mentioned this and I'm watching all the Uber drivers go by and then mine shows up, he's Dominican, Dominican Republic. Yeah. And I speak Spanish fluently. We, we got into a great conversation and, and I unsolicited, I said, How, well, I said, how's living in Utah for you? And he said, it's great. He said, but you know what, man? He said, it breaks my heart to admit it because I love the people here. He's like, there's racism here. He yeah. told me three stories yeah. where he had been horribly demeaned and oppressed or whatever, right? And, you know, the, the dude's heart was broken. I mean, the guy was practically yeah. in tears driving me to my house. And what do I say to that guy, man? How do I, how can I say I get it um, and not sound like, Oh, I get it. I get it. You know, but no, truly say like, dude, I get it. Like I, I get it in that. I don't get it. Like that's never happened to me, but I get it in that it happened to you and I'm really sorry. And I love you. That's what yeah. I said. When he dropped me off, I said, dude, I love you. I'm glad you're here. I accept you wholly. And you know, thank you for sharing with me. 
I'm sure yeah. he's like, he's like, dude, my <laughs> passenger just told me he me. like, <laughs> but dude, like, dude, I was awkward like, moment. yeah, <laughs> I'm, like, I, I'm like, man, I've been like learning about this and I do get you. I don't know that he got that message in yeah. the depth that I was trying to communicate it, but how do we communicate that, that understanding when someone says, man, I don't feel like things are fair around here. Yeah. Well, let me, let me ask you this. Um, I'm going to turn this back around on you, right? Okay. Um, you said your wife was pregnant with twins. She, she, we have one-year-old twins. One-year-old twins, okay. Yeah. So I don't know that the two of you have ever been in counseling together. I have no idea. I would venture to guess at some point, given that you have these two little ones running around your house, right? Uh, you, you and your, your, your significant other have had disagreements. Right. We, we've, uh, we've exchanged words. You know, exchanged <laughs> words, right? Very personal, very personal conversations, right? Right. <laughs> right. And I think that so, and I saw this with my wife, right? Particularly when she was pregnant, even after the pregnancy, right? Is that I realized that they were very, um, when it comes to childbearing, right, and, and child rearing, so to speak, right? There are, um, depending on how it's. Uh, couples go about it, there are some very real limitations uh, in terms of what you can and cannot do as a male, right? Just physiologically, there are certain things you cannot do. Like I cannot birth a child, right? I cannot carry a child for nine months. I have no idea what that is like, right? And so my, my question to you, and neither do you, right? Uh, but you know, your wife does, right? <laughs> like, right. And my totally. wife does. And when she comes to you to talk to you about what she's dealing with uh, in the various ways in which you may or may not be directly or indirectly contributing to the challenges that she's having or the experience that she's having, right? Once she explains that to you, how do you respond to her? Man, I'm trying not to laugh right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. You should hey, let, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Okay. How do you respond in a way that's healthy, right? <laughs> to say that. I should make that qualify, right? Like, All right. You shared a personal story, so I will. And it, it, it answers your question. And the other day, so my wife breastfed twins for a year. She just, yeah, she wow. just went off. And I mean, a heroic effort. She's a gangster. Yes. Oh my gosh, dude. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in the morning. I mean, yes, you know, like, and her body changed. And my yeah. wife's, you know, She's very attractive. She's, she's very athletic and her body changed. And she said to me, man, I'm going to blow myself up on this podcast. She says, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I, I love our kids. I feel guilty for saying this, but I'm really bummed out. My body changed. Yeah. Now, everything in Andrew's head was like, say the right thing, say the right thing, say yeah. the right thing. And I did the first time. And I said, babe, that sucks. I hear you. And I get it. And I was like, yes, I said the right thing. And then, <laughs> and then I was like, don't say it, don't say it. And I'm like, if it makes you feel better, I kind of have a dad bod now. Like, cookies. <laughs> you know how this finishes, buddy. Yeah, uh, yeah. That, that yeah. was not the right thing. In, the end was in the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> So but, I said the right thing and then I said the wrong thing. And yeah. I was very aware very quickly that that did not help the situation. Yeah. So yeah. yes, there's my story. And to your point, 
<laughs> He's like, I still don't know. Still working out. So I, I would say this. I would say this. I think that, I think that anytime you have a relationship, right, whether it's you know with your Uber driver, right, who, who you fall deeply in love with, or whoever, right, like it's, um, <laughs> I I think that one we all want to know that we're heard, right. That's that thing. So just affirming, like, yes, I hear you, right. Uh, I may not necessarily, un- I may not necessarily understand all that you go through, but I do hear you. Right. And I think also somewhere in there, right. Um, and this is all relative to time and, and whatever it may be in a situation, but I think it's also important that we, uh, as people in positions of privilege, whatever that may privilege may be, uh, when someone is speaking to us who is impacted negatively by the, uh, the maintenance of our privilege, right? That we're able to also articulate to them that we understand maybe not their experience, but the context in which their experience takes place. Does that make sense? Like, um, it's like, yes, because while you cannot share that experience, right, you do not share that experience and then probably don't even want to, right? Um, but what you do have knowledge of or have the capacity to expand your knowledge of is how you're in people who look like you, right? People who live in a similar space as you, how the, a, how that in the ways in which you help to contribute, whether passively or actively, right? To a context and a situation that um, facilitates that type of oppressive and marginalized experience. And you being aware of how you as an individual, right, plan to respond to rectify that. Does that make sense? It's kind of yes. like, um, it's kind of like, um, uh, I don't know if you've ever been in a relationship, but I, I tend to compare everything to relationships because at the end of the day, I'm like, we're just relational, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I've been in relationships with people who have had personal issues past experiences, whether it's with dad or with a previous boyfriend, whatever it may be, they had absolutely nothing to do with me whatsoever. Like nothing to do with it. And if you, yeah, just baggage, right? And we all show up with it, right? In different ways, in different capacities, right? And I've had two types of experiences. I've had those who showed up with baggage and dumped their baggage on me, right? Just like, boom just dumped it on me. It has nothing to do with me, but now I'm feeling all the effects, right, of their issues, right? <laughs> like, it's all being channeled towards me. And this happens, I don't care, if you're in a relationship with a human being, at some point, this is probably going to happen, right? right. I think the differentiating point is whether or not that person at any point in time comes to you and says, I'm sorry, I recognize that I did this to you, right? And it's really an acknowledgement of how they, that they recognize that their issues have had a negative impact on you, right? And then if that person goes one step further and says, not only do I recognize that my issues had an impact on you, because it's not your fault. You didn't deserve that, right? And I know you didn't deserve it. And this is what I'm going to try to do to make sure that doesn't happen again. There's that person. And then there's the person, right, who dumps all their stuff on you, 
and never really acknowledges that it happened. Yeah. They see you the next day, you, you sit down and talk and they act like it never happened. And when you bring it up, they just continue to tell you that it's your fault. The first, the first person you could, <laughs> you could actually marry, have a beautiful life with, right? And the two of you could grow together. The second person you can't. And so for me, when I think about my privilege, right, particularly as a, as a male, right? Uh, and my wife and I were having conversations uh, or just when I'm trying to live my life, uh, part of what I'm always thinking and trying to communicate is, okay, trying to learn to better identify how, how my issues as a man, my issue of sexism, how that impacts people like my wife, how it impacts people like my daughter and owning that. And then not only owning it, but then trying to find ways to, to, to ensure that it doesn't continue to happen. And then communicating that to my wife and my daughter. Because there's a certain level of accountability that happens the moment I speak to my wife and say, listen, I recognize that I'm showing up sexist in this particular way. And this is what I plan to do to rectify, to make sure that it doesn't happen again. Gotcha. That's measurable. And my wife can sit back and look at me and say, either he's doing it or he's not doing it. And I can be held accountable for that. I think that's one of the things that we communicate. That's, that's needed to be communicated, right? Um, at least to, the least to the personal populations or people who um, our issues affect. Now, conversely, I think there's a whole another conversation that needs to happen between you and I as males, right? <laughs> like, we need to have some very serious conversations because I think part of how we become aware of, uh, or, more, or more aware, right? Um, because I, I'm a firm believer that we all have, I don't think that anybody, I'm not yet convinced that anybody is completely oblivious to their privilege, just not. I think we all have some tacit awareness of the privileges that we have. And I say that we may not be able to articulate exactly what they are, but we at the very least, we have a tacit experience of that privilege. Because if you were to ask me as a black male to trade places with a black female or a female, well, black female, right? We ask to trade places with a black female who holds my same level of education, same economic status and same job, I would tell you no. And I think most men would do that assuming everything else to be equal. Similarly, I think if you ask most white people, hey, if you can keep everything you have now, same job, economic status, social education, whatever it may be, but you were black, would you do it? Most of them would say no. And that implies that there's at least some level of awareness that there's a difference in how the two of you are treated. So that said, I think um, there's conversations that need to happen amongst the privileged that help to facilitate those conversations between the privileged and the disadvantaged. Because I need to hold you accountable. And I need to call you out as a man and vice versa. And that's where the discomfort comes in, right? That's where the, hey, we're two buddies having a good time. We're, we're watching the football game and I make a comment and you say, Andrew, don't talk to your wife that way. That's not cool. Yeah. Or vice versa, right? That's kind of what you're referring to is like, hey, man, that's kind of sexist if you think about it. Like, yeah. as men, we need to start seeing this differently, right? Yeah. And that's, that's quite the challenge, right? And I, it's uncomfortable, but I think it's important. And that is, in, in a way, this podcast interview is, is 
part of my trying to say to my circle, like, listen, this guy is sharp. Like he knows what he's talking about. I've learned a ton from him. But, you know, also being able to say it myself is, is the challenge, right? How does that apply to institutional prejudice, right? You know, and because interpersonally, I think, you know, yeah. it makes sense, right? Now, when there's yeah. an institution that, you know, is oppressing in, in, in a certain way that maybe people may not even see it, you know, that's, that's a different kind of approach, isn't it? It, it is, but it isn't, right? Because, I mean, institutions at the end of the day are still made up of people. The institutions, much like people, right, operate on a, a, a series of assumptions about other people, right? Now, you have your sets of assumptions about women, about people of color, about, you know, uh, whatever, right? You have your assumptions. The institution also has assumptions. And I think it's important that we recognize that not only do these institutions have these assumptions, but these institutions have developed practices, policies, procedures, and laws, right? Based mm -hmm. on these assumptions. And we also know that these assumptions, what we also have to be willing to acknowledge is that at the heart of these assumptions, of institutional assumptions, right? Which is very similar to the individual, is that at the end of the day, white people are better. And more specifically, white men are the best. This is the basic assumption. And that assumption has inherently built into it, assumption one, white people are better. What is the exact opposite of white? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's black, right? And this, this uh -huh. is why we, we all, when you think about it, this is why we often have, when we talk about race, we often talk about it in terms of black and white, because these are your two polar ends of the spectrum. And the institution was built, every social institution we have was built with, with these two polarizing groups in mind, at least conceptually polarized groups, right? It was built with those two in mind. Everyone else falls somewhere on that continuum and their, their cat, the, the classification and, and even how we define every other group between black and white will vary over time. And it, it, it changes based on political needs, right? And the interest of the white group. You look at anyone of Asian descent in this country, the narrative mm -hmm. about individuals from China in particular and Japan has changed over the last, what, 50, 60 years? How so? When you think about model minorities today, typically Chinese, people of Chinese and Japanese descent are typically what we identify as model minorities. Right. What, what do you mean by model minority? I think I understand what you're saying. I just want to make yeah. sure I'm clear. What do you like? Can you? So there's this concept of a model minority. A minor, A model minority is a. If you're not white, right? <laughs> <laughs> this, which means you're, you know, you're a minority in this country, right? At least in this country, right? Um, mm -hmm. Then this is how you should show up in white spaces. You should show up gotcha. like, this, like this particular group, right? Mm -hmm. And so when we think about individuals, particularly from uh, China and Japan, we have stereotypes such as they're hardworking, right? They're good at math, science, right? STEM fields, right? Like this, mm -hmm. is, this is the narrative that exists, right? right? Go back to your grandfather's era and gotcha. ask him to describe the Chinese and the Japanese, right? Completely, yep. it was a completely different narrative that existed, the, the, exactly the exact opposite. Right. 
You can go back and look at images that were produced in America, particularly around China and Japan, right? Koreans as well, right? In terms of them being aloof, dumb, violent. You know what I mean? Um, Exactly. Exactly. It's a totally different narrative, but it changes because China, Japan, right? Korea, they start to become more economic powers. They, they start, we start to view them in this country as potential resources for our own advancement. And so we change the narrative. So that's why I say, so you have these two extremes, right? So every institution within America functions on the assumption that whites, white lives matter, right? <laughs> like it, it, they function on that assumption, right? That white lives matter and the best of all white lives is white men, right? Like that's like that's a top and total point. <laughs> Right. And then you can break that out even further, like white heterosexual men and white heterosexual Protestant men. Right. Like, but they all matter, you know, and that the exact opposite is the case for black lives. Right. That they don't matter. Mm -hmm. And so I think if we come to terms with that and we start examining the policies and practices and procedures of the institutions operating on the assumption that this is who they're designed to serve. And the thing is, this isn't a far-reaching assumption. It's really not. Because if you need, like, facts, just look at what those institutions produce. Right? And we were talking about it earlier. You want to know what an institution is designed to do, look at what it produces. It's that simple. Like, institutions do not produce things on a whim. They're not creative. Right? Like institutions don't wake up and say, you know what, today I'm going to paint a portrait of apples. Like they don't do that, right? Like <laughs> they, they do exactly what they were designed to do. If you, if you build a machine that is designed to produce Ford F-150s, it's going to produce a Ford F-150 every time you turn a machine on. It's not going to all of a sudden produce you a Maserati. It's not. It's not going to do it. As much as you may want it to, it will not. Mm-hmm. The only way that machine produces something different is if you do at least two things. One, recognize what was the machine designed to produce. Then take it apart and reassemble it to produce something else. And that's hard, right? And that's, that's where you t- come in and start making suggestions and sometimes people say, wow, yeah, that's that's more than we had anticipated, right? Yeah, yeah. Even, if, even if they're well intentioned, right? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, like, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And but we got to start somewhere, right? And that's yeah. that's what I really appreciate about you and the work that you're doing and the knowledge and just everything that you bring to this conversation. I've learned so much. I'm thoughtful of your time. I got to get rolling as well. Just. Any, any closing thoughts that you want to leave to the listeners and also where can they find you if you're findable? I, I don't, you know what? I'm so <laughs> interesting. You brought that up. A friend of mine keeps telling me I need to put together a website, but I have this, uh, I have this belief that uh, one day computers and robots will take over the world. Right? <laughs> so <laughs> I tend to steer away from it, but I am working on it and I will get that together, I've resigned myself to the fact that I need to put together a website. Uh, and so that's one of my goals for this year. Uh, and once I do, I'll definitely get that to you. If you want to push it out at that point, your, yeah. your, your listeners, great. Um, I think closing thoughts, I mean, I think that at the end of the day, um, 
growth is always, I think, I think the thing we have to keep in mind, right? Because I, I think the idea of discomfort has come up several times in our conversation, right? And uh, there's a quote I read by Khalil Gibran years ago. He said, comfort zones are the slow assassination of the soul. And this is largely informed by the idea that like we only grow in the moments of discomfort. There, there has to be some type of discontinuity or disruption in our everyday life before we even ask a question. And it's the questions that lead to the, the acquisition of knowledge. We don't acquire knowledge unless there's first a question to pursue it, right? Uh, but those questions always come out of that discomfort. And I think if we're sincere about trying to have an impact, trying to, to contribute to a more just society, right? if we're sincere about that, then we have to, to learn to seek the discomfort, right? And recognize that that discomfort uh, will lead to, to growth, greater understanding and growth and prosperity and so forth and so on. I would say that, and, and, I, and the last thing is I think we really, I remember my dad having this conversation years ago. I said, you know, one of the biggest challenges, what I think is like one of the fundamental challenges of humanity is an issue of identity, all right? Um, and I say that in the sense that if you look at any social problem, if you look at racism, if you look at classism, if you look at sexism, and what ableism, you just go down the line, um, at the heart of the tension between the have and have nots, between the privilege and the disadvantage, the tension between them is rooted on some sense of the distorted uh, perception of identity. And until we really wrestle with these, these notions of identity, this, this, these poorly constructed identities, right? Like what it means to be a man and how that makes me vibe. Until I really wrestle with that, right? Things like sexism, classism, racism, and the like, they will continue to exist. They will. Because there is not an institution alive that was not produced by people. And our institutions reflect our values. And our incident, not only do they reflect our values, but they ensure that those values will be perpetuated and sustained over time, right? Uh, so once we start to really wrestle with how we identify, how we self-define, that will directly impact our values and impacting our values will impact what we create and impacting what we create will impact what we, you know, what, what sustains us. Exactly. It's a people problem. It's it a people is. Problem, man. And I think just speaking from personal experience, as life goes on and I've yeah. had, I've sought out those more uncomfortable conversations, but real ones with a gay friend, for example, yeah. you know, um, and yeah. said, help me understand what it's like to be gay. Like really help yeah. me understand it. Um, trans, you know, a woman, right. To find someone. And I guess that's my challenge to the listeners piggybacking off of this whole interview and your final comments is find someone that you think you understand, but you probably don't per Dante's, you know, challenges here. Right. Yeah. And sit down with them and say, and, and I honestly, I did this with um, a colleague woman and I said, walk me through it. And, and I, it was someone that I trusted and felt safe enough with to go. Okay. So if I say this and I, I actually feel this way, why is that offensive? And, and, and she, I went into the conversation in a way that I said, I want to have this conversation with you. I want to be vulnerable and I want to just be real without your judgment of me. And, and so I was able to flush out because we all 
in, in, in positions of privilege, we all go, yeah, but, yeah, but yeah. kind of, you know, and I, and I wanted to flush out my yeah, buts. And that's yeah. where I said, okay, yeah, but like, this is how I see it. And she's like, this is where you're wrong. <laughs> yeah. And that one conversation or, you know, with her in my conversation with my gay friend, those are the conversations that have changed me and have had me walking away going, okay, I get it. And I also get why I didn't get it before that conversation. And yeah. that's, that's what I appreciate about you, man. I, I get it. And I'm learning a ton. I look forward to learning more from you. And man, I, I just can't thank you enough for your time. This has been no, great. anytime. And, and I would challenge you on uh, just a couple of things with that though. Right. Okay. And this is about semantics, but you know, semantics matter, right? Cause words matter. Um, mm -hmm. Perfect present tense, right? Like versus, you know, past or, or, or present is getting it right. It's always a process of, because mm -hmm. I'm always trying to, there will never be a point where I got you. I'm always, I'm always arriving, but never arrived, right? Um, so I would say that number one, right? And just be cognizant of that, right? Because uh, one, that language also helps to keep you moving, right? The recognition that is always an approximation of truth, but never the apprehension of. And I would say too also is that, and you said this uh, a minute ago, you're like, you know, I want to sit here and have this conversation with you without you judging me, right? Again, it's you looking for a safe space, right? <laughs> you feel me? You know what I'm yeah. And it's like, you know, and I get it. I get, I get the inclination and the desire to, right? But what you're now doing is you're heaping more burdens on them, right? To yeah. appease you. Whereas yeah. at first, identifying someone who's willing to have that conversation because everyone doesn't have, doesn't, is not willing to, right? And that's because it's a, it's a burden to have, to walk someone through what they don't know, right? Um, and it usually falls on those who, who lack the power, right? It's an additional burden that falls on them. And then we add on top of that, yeah, but I don't want you to judge me either, right? Like I, should, <laughs> like, I want you to share with me all of your knowledge, right? I want you to absorb, absorb more of my ignorance, right? Because like, like, <laughs> like you live in my ignorance as it is. And I want you like to personally like one-on-one -on -one absorb more of it. And I don't want you to judge me, right? <laughs> like I just want to, and I want to come out on this better, right? And, yeah. but the, and so the, and then my question to you and my challenge to you is, what are you bringing to the table for them? So they've, so, they've done all of this, right? To yeah. help you be better. What are you giving to them? You know what I mean? So that would be my challenge, right? Try to figure out what that is, you know? <laughs> like, what am I going to bring to the table? Because I'm asking my, my gay friend or my, my female, whoever, whatever, right? Um, I'm asking this particular person to give me something that will improve who I am with the recognition, right, that this person is socially anyway, not as valued as I am, right? And I'm going to take what value they do have with me. So what value am I going to leave with them? That's great. How, how am I that. going yeah. to engage that helps build them up? Because otherwise, yeah. what, you're, what you're looking at, right, is continued exploitation of those who lack the power. Well, I, it's ugly and messy, man. It's no, I, mean, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. and, and actually, it, it and I and I told you this before we interviewed that. Yeah. You know, part of my, you know, in in some ways it was intimidating because I'm like Dante. I don't want to say something stupid, right, in this interview, knowing that 
I'm still learning, right? And you were great. You're like, dude, we're all learning. Like you just said it again, right? And that's, I wanted to be vulnerable in that way to my listeners as well and yeah. show that like, hey, I'm willing to put it out there and, and kind of like, I'm still learning. Anyway, I don't know that I'm making much sense right now. No, but- no, no. I mean, it does. I remember, And I remember you and I having that conversation. And my exact response to you actually was, yeah, you're going to say something stupid, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like, I was like, no, don't worry about it. Like, you're going to say something stupid. And I'm like, but the comfort is, is like, yeah. so am I, right? Like, that's just, that's because we <laughs> are, right? Like, we're, and I yeah. think that's the thing. And I think that goes back to, like, that always, that always getting it, right? Like, always in the process of, because it, it works both ways, right? Like, I, I'm, I know me, like, as a black male, like I'm constantly working through what race is and how it functions. Us. I watch my wife, like now that we have a daughter, right? She's she'll be two this month, and my my wife is thinking about although gender uh, issues of race and gender have always been something of, of deep concern and contemplation for her, right? Like now she's thinking about it very differently, even even more differently and more intensely than she was before, and so. I think we're, we're always, dis- despite where we fall on this on this spectrum of privilege or disadvantage, we're all trying to figure this thing out together. We're at, I think we're at different. Some of us are at different spaces and different uh, along that continuum, but we're all trying to figure it out. And I think the more conversations we can have like this, the better we'll all be for. So yeah, man. Anytime, man. Absolutely. Thank you. Anytime. Hey, thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it. Thank you for your time. And I look forward to uh, connecting with you again soon. Sounds great, my man. All right. All right, take care. Take care. Hey, guys, thanks again for joining this episode of In the Trenches with me, your host, Andrew Taylor. If you like what you're hearing, I would love it if you would subscribe to my podcast. You can find me on iTunes and SoundCloud. It's In the Trenches with Andrew Taylor. So thanks for joining and hope to see you next time.